Mother's Day as an American holiday finds its roots in 19th century Virginia. A group of women started Mother's Day work clubs, they called it, to teach local women how to properly care for their children. And after the Civil War, these clubs organized Mother's Friendship Days, where mothers would gather with former Union and Confederate soldiers to promote reconciliation. Mother's Day as an official day was first celebrated in the U.S. in 1908 at a Methodist church in Virginia. Each mom was given a white carnation. Their reasoning was, quote, the carnation does not drop its petals but hugs them to its heart as it dies. And so too, mothers hug their children to their hearts, their mother love never dying. The woman who headed up the celebration wanted Mother's Day to be a simple holiday where churches honored mothers, children thanked their mothers, and families spent time with mom. The custom, though, quickly spread to 45 states, and in 1914, it became an official holiday. Its stated purpose, according to the U.S. government, was to honor the sacrifices mothers made for their children, which is a bit of the shift from the early focus on mothers being taught how to care for their children and serve the community, but it did honor the desire of its founder. Interestingly enough, the woman who organized that first celebration in 1908 and campaigned for it to be a national holiday later spent her entire life savings fighting for its removal from the calendar because of the commercialization. Mother's Day is known as the Super Bowl of Flowers. It is a, the only other holiday that does, does more business is Christmas. Now, I didn't bring all that up because I intended to tell you how to lecture you on how to spend Mother's Day or to preach to you on the proper way to do Mother's Day. Our American holiday is not a biblical holiday, so you need to seek the Lord and how He wants you to celebrate it. We always have made it an important day for for me and the kids to recognize Beverly and and to honor her and celebrate her. And we did the same thing for my mom when we were kids. But however you choose to celebrate Mother's Day, Mother's Day, I do think at church, is a good time to examine some scriptures that do help moms care for their kids and also help us to honor our mothers. So that's what we're going to tackle this morning. So I'm going to be over all over the Bible this morning, a little different than we normally do, but I trust the Lord will have something for us. So let's turn to John chapter 10. We'll start here. And we'll work our way through the entire Bible. (laughs) We see this amazing promise and a very sober warning that Jesus gives. In John 10.10, it says, The thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. This word thief is used in the Bible to describe those who deprive a person of their possessions. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, Jesus said that the religious leaders had made his father's house a den of thieves. In other words, they were ripping people off. They were keeping them from experiencing God's blessings, even as they were coming to worship and receive God's blessings. And you know, that's what Jesus says here. That's the enemy, what he has come to do. I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. One uh, wise pastor put it this way. He said, the enemy comes to destroy your soul, to kill your effectiveness for God, and to steal your joy. In other words, his primary goal is to destroy your soul. But if you get saved and you can't stop that, well, then he's going to try to kill your effectiveness. He's going to try to kill any work that God's trying to do in and through you. And if he can't do that, then he's going to try to steal your joy as you walk with Jesus. 
He came for that purpose. Jesus came for a different purpose. Now, Jesus certainly was doing these things as God the Son prior to his incarnation. It's not like, you know, all of a sudden in the incarnation, and now he's come to give life and that more abundantly. The idea here of coming is the same way in the Scriptures where it talks about, and God remembered someone. It's not like Noah was floating on the ark for weeks and weeks, and all of a sudden God turns to Gabriel and is like, Gabriel, I forgot all about Noah. The word I remembered, it means he began to take an active role in their life again. When Jesus says here that I've come and and that Satan's come, the idea is that this is what his intent is to draw near to us. This is the work he wants to do in our lives. So while the enemy wants to rip us off, Jesus wants to give us something better. Jesus, interestingly enough, when we divorce words from their context, they, they may still be powerful, but they lose their true significance. And Jesus spoke the words of John 10.10 10 after the events of chapter 9. Sometimes chapter uh, headings or chapter breaks can be a little deceiving, and we, we think, well, now the events of chapter 10 are removed from chapter 9, but they're not. Jesus spoke the words of John 10.10 after the religious leaders excommunicated the man in chapter 9 that Jesus healed of blindness. They ripped this poor guy off. He'd just been healed, and then they excommunicate him because he won't denounce Jesus. And then after Jesus comes and restores him and lets him know, I'll never leave you or forsake you, they have the nerve to ask Jesus, do you think we're blind too? Jesus' reply to them in chapter 10 is clear. You deprive this man of blessings because, well, that's what the enemy's done to you, and that's how you interact with people. That's the way you're living life right now. You're living life on a a lower level. The the concept of, I'm come that you might have life and that more abundantly. The concept there is this idea that something was lost. Something was lost with the fall that God designed us to experience. And Jesus said, I've I've come to give you life on a different level is a way you could translate that, a leg up. Life on a supernatural level, life the way God designed it to be. And so he says, I'm offering you that because the truth is humanity doesn't have that now. We're living life on a lower form of the way God designed us to live. Yes, we still exist. Yes, we still, because we're made in the image of God, experience some of the the wonders of, uh, of being created by God, but we're not living life in the way that God intended us to live it. And so Jesus says, that's how you live it, and so you've deprived this man of those things because that's what the enemy's done to you. But I stepped out of heaven to give you something better, real life, real living. Now, the problem came in is that the the religious leaders thought we already had life. In, In their mind, they believed the right things, and they were doing the right things, so we're good, right? I believe all the right things, and I'm doing good things, so I'm good, But at the end of Jesus' words, when he tells them, you're not good, you need something else, and I've come here to give it to you. At the end of it, they're divided in their opinions. Look at John chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. It says, and many of them said, he has a demon. He's mad. He's crazy. Why do you listen to this guy? But others said, well, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There was split on this. Jesus made this radical promise. The enemy wants to steal your joy. He wants to rip you off, but Jesus is promising them something better. I am promising you life on a different level. Some of them said that's crazy. We, we know what we need. We got everything right here now. If we just go this way, we just pursue this thing, everything will be fine. And others said, yeah, but he just opened the eyes of a blind man. Maybe he's making some sense. I think the enemy the world, our flesh, pitch us a similar lie. 
Real life is over here. Real life is over there. What Jesus promises is crazy. No one can live like that. No one can live with this, this abounding life where he talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit of loving everybody and having peace in your heart and experiencing joy unspeakable and full of glory. But is it crazy? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. Now, before we read 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to remind you that the same guy who says the words in 2 Corinthians 4 is the same guy who said in 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Paul says, me and my team, we were so beat up by the enemy, we were so out of our ability to handle what was coming our way that we just wanted to die. We, we didn't want to go on. We thought, Lord, just take us home. We can't do this. That's the guy who's going to speak the words I'm about to read to you in 2 Corinthians 4. You may have heard people say, well, God won't give you anything you can't handle. That's not a biblical idea. That you're not going to find that in the Bible. God gives us all sorts of things we can't handle because we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding, but in everything we do, we're supposed to acknowledge Him. In everything we do, we're supposed to do it with His supernatural strength and supernatural power. Now, the verse that most people are thinking of when they say that, God won't give you anything that you can handle, is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which says something similar, but not exact. Oh, actually, no, it's 1 Corinthians 10, which says something similar, where it says, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted of above that which you are able, but literally that means above that which you are enabled. Not able, but enabled. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear up under it. In other words, the Lord provides an avenue, a different doorway we can walk through than tackling it on our own, that we can overcome the temptation. God gives us all sorts of things we can't handle. And here's Paul saying, our team, we, we couldn't do this, and we had, we had despaired of life. But they had not just their own life living in them, they had the life of Christ. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. We don't know what to do, but not in despair. Persecuted, yes, but not forsaken, Cast down, knocked down, struck down. Somebody, we took a good punch to the jaw, but we're not destroyed. He says this, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. Do you see that? We always are bearing about in this body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that death that he experienced in order that his life might be revealed through this mortal body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That's a good verse to put on your fridge. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That's my promise I can claim this morning. Right? Doesn't land on too many bestseller Christian book lists, does it? But it's truth. But why are we which live always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death works in us, but life in you. We which live are always delivered to death that the life of Jesus might be revealed through this mortal flesh, which is incapable of generating life in and of itself. And as a result of that death working in us, others experience life. So the Lord says, I'm going to be working death in you so that life can be found 
in you and through you. Now, Paul did not make this up. He's echoing another promise of Jesus. Jesus said, listen, I'm coming that you might have life and that more abundantly, life on a different level. And how do we find it? Well, Jesus talked about that later in Matthew 16, chapter, uh, verses 24 and 25. Very familiar verse to most of you, I'm sure. When Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, you wake up in the morning, Jesus is there waiting, handing out crosses, right? What's the task today, Jesus? Die, my son. Lay down your life, give it up. And he explains why. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. It's a radical promise. Crazy promise. And that's why we tend to struggle, isn't it? Is it really possible to find life by losing it? I mean, think about that for just a second. If I go out there and step in front of a vehicle, I'm going to lose my life, and lose it. I'm not going to find anything. You, you might find pieces of me, but you're, I'm not going to find life. Like if, if we put ourselves in a position where we're going to be in danger, we don't, that's not a way we find life. So this principle, it runs counter to our intuition. It runs counter to, to everything about our sense of, of like, how do I get ahead? How do I be happy? How do I succeed in life? How do I really find what life is all about? We say, well, it's pursuing, pursuing life. But Jesus says, no, it's by pursuing death. Is it really possible to find life by losing it? Well, this morning... I want to make the case for joy. I want to make the case for finding life in dying. The Bible tells us that joy is a fruit of this supernatural life that Jesus offers us. We also know it's one of the ways the world around us sees something different, something that's out of this world in us. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness, we get the word, I might happen, you know, I happened to bump into so-and-so today. It wasn't a plan. It's just circumstances worked out where I happened to bump into them. Happenstance, it's the idea of luck, good luck. Happenstance, oh man, I happened to show up at the store and they had the two-for-one deal for the thing I was going to get. That puts a smile on your face because that's happy. It's like luck was, you know, luck went my way. I didn't plan to experience this, but man, it went my way. That's where that word comes from. The word joy, though, is not related to our circumstances. Happiness is based on whether things are going well or not. People say, why are you sad? Well, something bad happened. Nothing wrong with being sad. But sadness is also different than despair, just as happiness is different than joy. You see, joy is such an essential part of the abundant life Jesus promised us that when Paul exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord in Philippians 3.1, Philippians' whole letter is just these little exhortations, and then he spends a couple verses explaining like how we live it out. But then he gets to chapter 3, Philippians 3.1, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. This I say unto you, rejoice in the Lord. And then he spends two chapters on joy, how to rejoice in the Lord. The reason that we need two chapters is because of this struggle believing that we find life by losing our lives. If I were to summarize Paul's point in Philippians 3 and 4, it would be this. Our experience of joy has everything to do with our response to God rather than the quality of life we attain. 
Paul explains all through these two chapters, our experience of joy has everything to do with our response to God rather than the quality of life we attain. And Paul is qualified to speak on that topic. Paul spent his entire life seizing the life that he wanted. I want to be a revered rabbi. I want to follow in the footsteps of Gamaliel. I want to be a Pharisee. I want to be the best Pharisee. And here's the crazy part. Not only did he he set out to seize that dream, but he attained it. He reached the pinnacle of all of his dreams. If we turn to Philippians chapter 3, he talks about what he attained. He explains in verse 4, these false teachers have confidence in their flesh. We, we shouldn't. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, verse 3, he says, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though, he explains, verse 4, Philippians 3, I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinks that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have it more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. You might say, what kind of achievement is that? Well, if you had the viewpoint that being Jewish gave you a leg up, then he's already a leg up, right coming out of the womb. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was a, of the tribe of Benjamin, the, the line of King Saul. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I became a Pharisee. Concerning zeal for God, I, kill, I persecuted the church. And touching the righteousness which is in the law, you wouldn't have had any dirt on me. I was blameless. And while Paul may have been satisfied with himself or even happy reaching the pinnacle of his dreams, one day with Stephen was all it took to show Paul how empty he was. You know, it's interesting, you see some of the things that Luke wrote, and some of the other writers like Mark talked about, and you go, Mark, you weren't even old enough to know about that. Like, clearly you talked to someone else. Well, Luke wasn't there when Stephen got stoned, but Paul was. And one of the things that Luke points out is that Stephen's face, that the, the religious leaders saw that it, it shone like an angel. Paul saw that supernatural joy that Stephen had, even as he was being killed, a joy that enabled him to save, Father, into my hands, you know, I take my life, you know, I, mean, I give myself to you, and, and Lord, please don't lay this to their charge. They don't realize what they're doing. Like you read stories about the martyrs. I was reading a story the other day about a man who, he'd been a pastor to the point where they had rested him because theologically he believed only in the gospel, only in the Bible. He didn't hold to like church traditions and rituals and things like that to save him. And at the time in his country, that was a bad thing to do, to believe the Bible. And so, but he was such a powerful impact on the community, even though they arrested him and put him in jail, they would let him out and to go minister to the to community with only just a promise that he'd come back. And eventually, he, he was brought to the stake to be burned. And someone, you know, as he's singing to Jesus as he's dying, someone took a piece of wood and threw it at his head, hit him in the head, and he said, sir, you've interrupted a glorious song. Like, how do you do that? Like, I mean, I think all of us, we conceive of that, and you think, I, I, I have a hard time walking with Jesus and what I'm going through today. To die with such joy, to be martyred with such joy, that's what Paul saw, and it shook him. That's all it took to show him how empty he was. One day, with one guy who had something supernatural. When Paul finally surrendered his life to Jesus, he decided to pursue something else. Look at Philippians 3, 7 through 10. 
He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss. In other words, he says, everything behind me I achieved, it's, it's, a, it's a loss. It's like it's a negative thing. And then anything else I could achieve looking forward, that's also a negative. For, in other words, I'm, I'm going to count it a loss. I don't need it. I don't need to hold on to it. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, the, the surpassing worth of just knowing Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done that I may win Christ. The idea here of this word refuse or dung, it's, it's a concept of something that we, we don't want to show off, something we want to dispose of. I have lots of trash cans in our house, bathrooms, things like that, and we don't show them off. It's not like if someone first comes to the house and goes, let me show you the trash cans and what's in it. Paul says, that's what I look at, all the achievements I had. I do count them a dung that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. That's what I had, and it wasn't supernatural at all. He says, but I want to be found with that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. What am I talking about? He says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. How did Jesus die? But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. We would look at that as a horrible, awful thing, but it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured it and despised the shame. He died with a joy in his heart of what he was accomplishing. He also died obediently, obediently to the Father. So in his obedience to the Father, there was joy. And for the life that he was giving to us through his death, there was joy. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. Whosoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's what I did. And he brought life to all of us. Paul says, trust me, I've done it all. There's a wrong path of pursuing your dreams that doesn't lead to God's joy, and there's a better path of pursuing knowing Jesus that leads to life and all of its fruit, including joy. So I ask you this morning, I mean, do you believe Paul's conclusion is true? Do you believe that we find life and joy by laying our lives down? Or do you believe that we find it by pursuing what we want? because that's the struggle. That's where it's at. Like any time, any time I'm struggling, it's because I don't know if that's true. Because I think I need this, or I think this is where we found it. I think, I think it's found over here, or over there. There are many scriptures that, that exhort us of, of, to have joy and call us to rejoice and tell us why. Look at Psalm 68 with me. We're going to look at Psalm 68 and 97. Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. People read that and they get bothered by that. But I think it's kind of funny. That at the same time people will get bothered by that, they get bothered because God doesn't stop evil. Like, you can't have it both ways. See, here's where the problem lies. 
We say, well, if God was a God of love, why do evil things happen in the world? But then when God punishes evil, we say he's harsh or he's cruel or he doesn't love people or he's mean or it's too much. See, the problem is, is because if I recognize that God needs to punish some evil, well, the problem is, is I'm evil. I don't want God to punish me. I don't want God to deal with me. It's not fair for God to deal with me. I'm a good person. I, I try my best. Yeah, I mess up sometimes, but, but I try my best, and I'm, I'm a decent person. But the psalmist here declares, man, if, if you're not right with God, if you're wicked, like, you're in trouble, man. And God, we're praying for the day when He'll fix this mess. There'll be no more wars. There'll be no more, no more evil, no more theft, no more, no more… Oh, my brain just dumped a bunch of sins out, which is normally a good thing. No more mistreatment of those who are poor or of a different skin color. No more unkindness. No more unfaithfulness. He says, let that happen, God. But in contrast, let the righteous be glad. Like if God gets up to do something about the wicked, the righteous don't have to worry about that. Let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God. Sing praises to His name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, the Lord, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the lonely in families. He brings out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. David contrasts these two paths we can pursue by showing the danger and the dryness that are experienced by those who rebel against God. Like David's writing this because he's saying, man, Lord, get up and do something about the wicked. But the idea is if you're part of the wicked and you hear that, that you'll read that and go, I don't want God to do something about me. I want to be glad. So repent. The path of the wicked, it's dryness and danger, but the righteous don't have to worry about God being against us. In fact, even in life's most painful situations, when you're an orphan or, or you've been widowed or you're lonely or you're in chains to sin, God blesses us. We always have cause to rejoice because God blesses us. How God blesses us is that cause of our rejoicing. He, he meets our needs. He sets us free from sin. He gives us His presence. I ask you this morning, is that enough for you to rejoice? It's a good question to ask yourself. Is that enough for you to rejoice? You and I will only find life, real living and answering yes, by saying that's enough for me. Knowing Jesus, that's enough for me. Experiencing His presence, knowing His love, being set free from sin, Him guaranteeing my needs are met, that I, I trust Him for that, that's enough. That's the only way you and I will find real life, real life, real living. If you and I reject that truth, we will experience dryness in life and opposition to God, even if you get everything you wish for. Even if you get everything you wish for. Whatever that thing might be. Whether it's you say, well, no, I, I want to pursue this kind of life, God. You know, this is, this is what I think I need. This is what I think is best for me. Or whether you want to pursue some, some achievement or some experience, whatever the thing might be, it'll lead to dryness and danger. Look at Psalm 97. Psalm 97, it starts off, it says, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. 
Like that should be enough. The Lord being on His throne is cause enough to rejoice. And for those of you who you believe, you know that because no matter what's going on around you, you know the Lord's still in charge. Now, when I say that the Lord is still in charge, I don't mean that God causes bad things to happen. That's not my point. Well, you know, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. When we talk about the Lord being in charge, God is not the author of evil, all right? There is no hope and comfort in the fact when evil things happen, you go, well, you know, God's got a plan and He caused this evil to happen. That's part of His plan. That's not what I mean by that. What I'm saying that God is in charge is that the things that He allows to happen, that He allows us to decide to do that hurt other people, that impact other people in a negative way, that are wicked things, the things that He allows to happen doesn't mean that He still is not going to make His plan come to pass. That's where the hope, that's where the joy comes in. I don't have to look out there and go, well, I'll have joy because I guess in the midst of all these horrible things, God's causing all of them. That's not the point. That would be, make me worried. That would make me wonder if God was actually good. In contrast, we have great confidence in knowing that as all these things are going on, the Lord says, I didn't miss any of this, and my plan is still in place, and I'm still going to bring it to a close. Remember Jesus, what he said? He said, listen, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. All these things have to happen. But that's not the end. It's not the end. The end's not yet. I'll tell you when the end is, and then he spends three chapters talking about it. But he starts off this thing. He says, don't let your heart be troubled because you look around you and you see things that is just evil and wicked. The Bible tells us that the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Satan's always working. The enemy's always got things he's trying to do. But the Lord's the one who always has the final word to say, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. His plan always supersedes the enemy's plan. So God is still in charge, which means my end is secure. His reign is coming whether I see it in my day or not. That's how people could go to the stake singing as they die, holding their joy in the midst of suffering because they knew that, well, I'm not going to see His reign in my lifetime, but I'm coming back with Him when it comes. His plan isn't going to fail. We just sang that. His plan's not going to fail. His promises will not fail, no matter what happens in front of us. We skip down to verse 8 of Psalm 97, and it says, Zion heard. In other words, God is all these things. He's in charge. Zion heard and was glad. The daughters of Judah, they rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So you that love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. So rejoice in the Lord, He says, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness." Listen, my joy comes from knowing that the Lord who is exalted above all, He's my God. He's my God. You want to mess with me? That's fine. You want to give me a problem? That's fine. You want to take my life? That's fine. But I'm, my God's still my God. My joy comes from knowing His ways are best and that He makes no mistakes. He's righteous. My joy is found in loving Him, trusting Him, and knowing Him. They might be thinking, what does all this talk about joy have to do with motherhood? Well, because I do think these principles apply to the wonderful calling in Christ of being a mom. 
The Bible tells us that joy in motherhood is God's plan. For example, God promises that parenting is intended to bring joy. In Luke chapter 1, verse 14, when the angel came to Zacharias and told him that, that his wife Elizabeth, who had been barren, she was an older woman, well beyond years of bearing, that she would have a son, he said, you're going to have gladness and joy because of this child. In John chapter 16, verse 21, when Jesus was teaching on another topic, he, he illustrated this topic by talking about the joy a mother has. In uh, John 16, 21, it says, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. Like the, the labor is coming, the pain is coming. And I'm not a woman. I have never come close to experiencing what you have gone through for those of you who have given birth, but I've been in the room and I know I don't want to trade places. A woman, when she sees that, she has sorrow because it's hard, it's painful. But Jesus says as soon as she is delivered of the child, she doesn't remember anymore the anguish. Why? For joy that a man is born, a human being is born into the world. God designed parenting to be a source of joy and gladness. He designed a mother to experience joy at the birth of their child. So God's overall plan is He promises that parenting is intended to bring joy. But God specifically offers joy in motherhood. Look at Psalm 113, verse 9. In Psalm 113, verse 9, it's one of these psalms that's uh, the Hallel Psalm, you know, praise the Lord. It's giving all sorts of reasons to praise the Lord. One of the reasons that we praise the Lord is because Psalm 113, verse 9 says, because He makes the barren woman to keep house. She makes her someone who has a family. And to be a joyful mother of children. Not just a mother of children, but a joy-filled mother of children. Which means it's possible to be a joy-filled mom. To go through the challenges of motherhood and all the sacrifices you make as a mom with joy in your heart. Now, that it's possible to be a joy-filled mother means it's possible to be just a mother, but not joy-filled even though that's how God intended it to be. So what makes the difference? Well, the path you choose to pursue as a mother. Are you going to try to save your life? Well, you'll lose it. You'll miss out on the joy. Will you lose your life for Jesus' sake? Will knowing the Lord reigns, knowing He loves you, and knowing Him be enough of a source of joy for you? The Bible tells us you'll find it. So you lay down, I want to be happy. Okay, well, lay that down and pursue Jesus, then you'll find joy. When Mary was informed of the blessed but not exactly ideal circumstances of her entry into motherhood, she said in Luke 1.38, Behold the servant of the Lord, the handmaid of the Lord. I'm your servant, Lord. Like, I know you. You're my God. I'm your servant. That's enough for me. And now, granted, you read through the text and there's problems. Like, you know, the angel comes and says something. She doesn't understand it. Now, I realize something, first off, I'm not a mom, okay? I don't know what you go through. I don't know all the things you experience. I'm not going to pretend to say I do. I'm not going to pretend to say that I'm an authority figure on motherhood. But I, I do have the Word of God, and I do believe that when we look at this event that Mary experiences, we have some interesting things. The angel comes in, announces motherhood to her, and she's just like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Like, what's going on? 
And maybe that's how you felt as a mom sometimes. It's like, you think you grow up and everything looks like easy, right? Mom just takes care of stuff. And then I remember having our first child and, and you think everything should be simple, right? We almost, we almost killed our child the first day because we didn't know what we were doing. So, I mean, and then you experience things. You go, I don't know what to do. You know, like Paul, you're like, we despair of life. It's extreme. The part where he said we're perplexed. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, of, of all the experiences I've had, you know, there are many times, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what they're thinking. You, the person you marry, you know, you spend time with them, and then you, you grow in this relationship with them, and you, you have this deep intimacy, and then this child walks into your life, and they, they've got their own unique personality, and you've got you to gotta get to know them, and there's times you just don't get them. Not that they're bad, I'm just saying they're so different than anything you could imagine would pop out of you. You're perplexed. Sometimes you take a hit. But this supernatural life that's in us, if we, like, like you know, Mary, I don't know what to do. What does this mean? You know, then, then the angel says to her, explains it to her, and she goes, how is this possible? I've never known a man. That's nothing any of you mothers could claim. But the idea is like, like how is this going to work out? And, and the angel tells her, well, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you. Life, supernatural life. And so when she hears it all, she's like, okay, that's how it works, and that's God's plan for me? That's God's calling for my life? Yeah. She goes, then I'm your servant. Be it unto your handmaid as you, according to your word. This is what you've called me to, Lord? This is what you've said to me? This is your word to me about how I'm going to serve you? Well, then, Lord, I embrace it. I embrace who you made me to be. I want to read to you a quote. It's a long one. It's more than a quote. It's an essay by Elizabeth Elliot called Called to be Mothers. She says, as a mother, your life is given to taking care of people, small ones to begin with, whose wants never seem to cease. Sometimes your days seem to be wholly taken up with wiping things, dishes and sinks, little runny noses, and big slow tears. You wonder about what fulfillment is supposed to mean for you. You wonder about being besides the perfect wife and mother, the hostess with the mostest, creative, intellectually productive, beautiful, and slowly your dreams seem to evaporate. You've been listening to what they're telling us nowadays about how important it is to find yourself, express yourself, and assert yourself. Maybe you're thinking that you're nothing more than somebody's wife and somebody else's mother, and what kind of life is that? There's a tribe in the southern Sudan called the Nuris, where a woman's name is changed not when she becomes a wife, but when she becomes a mother. She is Manpuk, or Mother of Puk. Among the Nuras, being someone's mother is what makes a woman's life meaningful. And 2,000 years ago, there was another young woman of the Jewish tribe of Judah who understood that truth. The world has never forgotten her, Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she was willing to be known as simply someone's mother. Motherhood is a calling. It is a womanly calling, and let's not be cowed by those who extinguish the light and joy of sexuality by trying to persuade us to forget words like manly and womanly. At the beginning of time, when God made the first man and the first woman in His image, He put both under the divine command to be fruitful. The woman's obedience to that command meant self-giving. First, she gave herself to her husband, and then she gave herself to the life of her child. A woman knows in the deepest regions of her being that this is the very self-giving for which she was made. 
single or married, her level of maturity is measured by how much she gives to others. If she's married, she gives herself to her husband and she receives. If she's a mother, she loses her life and her child and mysteriously, she finds it. A woman knows that no one can really say where the giving ends and the receiving starts. It's no wonder we are confused when urged to look for some better or higher vocation in which to prove our personhood. No wonder we are distressed to be subjected to male standards or told that the notions of femininity and masculinity are obsolete. Old-fashioned notions, they are indeed, but they weren't our own to begin with. They were God's. He planned the whole system, and it is God Himself who calls. He calls some to be single, some married people to be childless, but He calls most women to be mothers. There are, the Bible tells us, differences of gifts, and they're all given to us according to God's grace. None of the gifts of my own life, not my career or my work or any other gift, is higher or more precious to me than that of being someone's mother. If our calling is to be mothers, then let's be mothers with all our hearts, gladly, simply, and humbly, like that little peasant girl Mary who spoke for all women for all time when she said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. One can be a mother without embracing God's calling to be a mother. And so have you embraced God's call to gladly, simply, and humbly be someone's mother? What you decide means the difference between life and existence, between barely hanging on and thriving. It's, and it's not that you project the image that all is under control and there are no problems. About 30 years ago, we dropped the notion of that, like, you know, you got to have it all together and make sure everybody thinks you have it all together. But then we swung the pendulum in the opposite direction, where it's like, I'm a mess, and I'm going to let everybody know I'm a mess, and tough, I'm not feeling it today. Obedience isn't something we do because we are feeling it today. So it's not that you project the image that all is under control and there are no problems, but it's that you project the supernatural life and joy that comes from having laid down your life and seeing Christ live through you amidst the challenges you face. And when you have that supernatural life and joy as a mother, you have the unique privilege and blessing of becoming a source of life to those around you. That's something that we all do as believers, but in particular, something that a mother can do. You know, in 2 Timothy 1.5, it talks about how a mother's joy, a mother's supernatural life becomes a source of life to others. Paul brings up, he says, listen, Timothy, I see that genuine faith, that authentic faith in you, but I saw it first in your grandma and your mom. Timothy's mother and grandmother had an authentic faith, and Timothy observed the supernatural life of God working in them and through him, through them, and that their real and tangible faith became a source of life to Timothy. You have that unique privilege as a mom to be life to them, not just to give them life, but to be life to them, to show them something out of this world, to show them something different. Turn to Proverbs 31, the dreaded Mother's Day verse, <laughs> section of Scripture, I should say. I don't know if my mom's watching, but happy Mother's Day, Mom. But she came up to me after I preached on Proverbs 31 one Sunday, and she said, don't you ever ruin my Mother's Day again. I remember people used to say all the time, don't ask God for patience because he'll give it to you. I must talk slower second service because I didn't tell any new stories. But I remember Pastor Chuck would say, he'd say, why do we think that the gifts that God gives are not good? 
Like, why would we be afraid to ask God for anything? The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. You know, he loves us. All his gifts are good. So, Proverbs 31 is good too, even on Mother's Day. And it says in Proverbs 31, verse 25, referring to this mighty woman in the same way you had the mighty men of David, you know, Solomon's describing here the, the mighty woman of faith, or Solomon's mom, I should say. You know, the mighty women, how they impact their community, how they impact people around them. So strength and honor are her clothing. And I love it, verse 25, she shall rejoice in time to come. The idea of time to come is this idea of just growing in joy over time, which of course is, is, is the challenge, right? You know, if you're a, a parent in general, but particularly a mom, is that, you know, it doesn't get easier as they get older, right? You know, you think of all the challenges you have when they're little and you're like, I'm not sleeping, I'm not this. You know, then they get older and you're like, they're not home yet, where are they? It gets harder, right? It gets more challenging. And then they go away, they get married. You miss them. You're still their mom. But she grows. She rejoices in time to come. Over time, this joy grows in the midst of the challenges that are growing as well. And that joy that you embrace, experience in embracing God's calling, it enables you to tackle those challenges of motherhood. Through that joy, it says, she opens her mouth, verse 26, with wisdom, and her tongue is the law of kindness. She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Embracing God's calling and experiencing that supernatural joy enables you to tackle the challenges of motherhood with wisdom, with kindness, and with diligence. And moms, your children, they, especially if they're still living with you, no matter how young they are or how old they are, your children absolutely need wisdom, kindness, and diligence. And it is from you that they will learn to be secure in the fact that God is wise and God is kind and God is active in their lives. I am so thankful that I grew up in a home where my mom, she was a source of, of joy. She projected that she, and she went through hard times, especially before my dad got saved. But I always knew I could talk to her about anything. I always knew I was loved. I knew there was a God out there who cared about me, even if I wasn't born again at the time. I'm so thankful for my kids that they've grown up in a world where, a home where my wife has exemplified this supernatural love to them the supernatural joy, this supernatural life, and they don't just grow up and they're like, well, this is the religious thing that mom does. No, they're like, something's different about my mom. Our kids need that. And that's what a mom is called to do, to give her life away to pour into others. In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, you can read it on your own time, but it mentions that, you know, the older women are to teach the younger women to do that, to give their lives away. And if you are an older mother today, even if your children are grown, that's your calling to teach younger moms to give their life away that they might find the life of Christ working through them to pour into those around them. And so as we get ready to close this morning, have you embraced God's beautiful call? A mom of whatever age you are, have you embraced God's beautiful call to simply be someone who gives their life away to pour into others? And do you believe Jesus' promise? and Paul's testimony. Now, you might say, well, I'm not a mom today. What does this mean to me? Well, certainly we can all learn from the lessons on supernatural life and joy, but you can also help someone who's a mom experience this supernatural joy, and you start with your mom. Look at Proverbs 23, and these will be the last verses I share. 
Proverbs 23, verses 22 through 25. If you have a mom today, you qualify for this, which means all of you. Proverbs 23, 22. It says, hearken unto your father that begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begets a wise child shall have joy from him. Your father and your mother shall be glad, and she that bare you shall rejoice. How do you help someone who's a mom experience this supernatural joy? Well, number one, don't despise your mom, especially as she gets older. Don't ever despise her. So you don't know the relationship I have with my mom. It's not good. There's a lot of bad things. My mom failed in a lot of ways. Okay, but you're breathing, aren't you? There's always at least one thing that you can say you're thankful for. Don't despise her, especially as you age. Secondly, buy the truth. Walk with Jesus. If your mom's a believer in particular, the thing that's going to bless her the most and bring her the most joy is when you're walking with Jesus. And thirdly, make good decisions. He who begets a wise child will have joy. It'll bring gladness to a father and a mother. Make good choices. And then lastly, in Proverbs 31, 28, it says that her children will rise up to call her blessed. Her husband will praise her as well. They used to tell me, they used to say when I was in the workplace, I was in management pretty much everywhere I went. So make sure that you give 10 compliments for every critique you give. And that didn't make any sense to me. I was like, you're not even doing two things right a day. How can I compliment you 10 times? But there's something about building someone up I was reading in Psalms today where it talks about, David's talking about all these things that God did for him. Lord, I was a mess. I wasn't walking with you like I should. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to. And, but Lord, you did all this for me. You spoke all these things to me. You heard me. You listened to me. There's a truth that the Lord, he speaks into us. He, he loves us when we're not lovable. He pours into us when we don't deserve it. You know, he's gracious to us. He's merciful to us when we've deserved otherwise. So, on this Mother's Day, start with your mom. If you have a wife, continue with her. Praise her. Bless her. Call her blessed. And do so regularly, not just on Mother's Day. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you for our moms. We're so grateful for their sacrifices, Lord. Thankful, Lord, for all the things that they instilled into us. Lord, we're thankful for the, the precious things that even about our own personal lives that we've gotten from our moms. And Lord, for those of us who are married, we thank you for our wives, Lord. Thank you for the, the diligence and the wisdom and the kindness they bring to our family, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would bless them today and we pray that you'd encourage them. Lord, that you'd strengthen them in the tasks they have. And then, Lord, for every mom here, I pray that, Lord, you would help them to realize that the powerful source of life they are to their kids. Lord, that in embracing this dying to find life, that they would experience that supernatural joy. Lord, that no, maybe everything's not perfect, but Jesus, I know him. He's living in me. He reigns. I'm going to be with him no matter what. Lord, that joy and that life that sustains them would have such an impact upon our kids. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being our wonderful Heavenly Father, for loving us. Thank you for this promise of life, Lord. We choose to believe it today. In Jesus' name, amen.